Well, good morning. It's good to see your faces today. I know many are either coming back from vacation or leaving for vacation or many of us are on vacation today, right? Somebody, I'm sure, is sitting on a beach somewhere enjoying the weather and enjoying the, the summer. So glad to have you here today. If this is your first time, welcome to Fairfax Bible Church. We're a group of imperfect people that are worshiping a perfect Savior. Uh, we are just so excited to worship King Jesus today and our worship pastor, Hang, he is out on vacation this week, so we're so glad that he can get some much-needed rest, and we've got not the B team, we've got team uh, 1A and 2A here today, and so glad to have the team lead us in worship. Thank you, Ryan and team, you guys did a great job. Uh, but we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So I want to invite you to open in your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some over on the table to your right, page 531. Uh, the blue Bible's to your right, page 531. If you've got it on your device, fantastic. If you brought a print Bible, that's, that's awesome too. But we're going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And we're going to actually conclude our, our mini-series here in the book of Acts, chapters 1 and 2, called Origin Story. Every great story starts with a hero. It starts with an origin about their story. How did they become who they are? And I love stories that are told to get the backstory. How did a superhero become a superhero? How did a great team become a great team? What's the traditions that have been passed down? And so we've been seeing not a fantasy story, but a true story. A true story about how the church was birthed. And we've seen some major significant people in the birth of the church. We saw Jesus Christ, the risen one, the exalted one up into the highest place in heaven, the one who rules over heaven and earth, sending his Holy Spirit down to his messengers, the apostles, so that, the, so that God isn't just with us, but God is actually in us. And the Spirit came down and indwelt the apostles and filled them up with power. And we saw these, these tongues of fire that resided over them so that they would go out and speak in languages that they'd never spoken or learned before, proclaiming praises to God. And a crowd of people gathered around as they saw these guys, these Galileans, these common, common people, fishermen and whatnot, speaking in languages that they'd never heard be learned before. So the people were wondering, what in the world is going on here? Are these guys drunk? And we saw last week Peter's explanation. We saw him say, no, what you see here today is in fulfillment of what God has been promising to do all throughout the history of his people Israel and for the whole world. And that was that he would send his Messiah, Jesus, who is the Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he showed that he is truly the one that was sent by God because powerful works were done through him and God raised him from the dead according to his plan. And Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit. And I love the response of those who heard, well, what should we do? We, we were the ones who crucified this Lord. What should we do? And Peter says, repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so we see this was the origin story of the church. 3,000 souls in that moment responded to Peter's message. They repented of their sins and were baptized and believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so we see these 3,000 people there in this story, and then we have to ask ourselves, what next? What do you do with 3,000 people? Maybe play some music, I don't know. <laughs> That's all right, we'll get that figured out. 3,000 people, though, 
coming to faith in Jesus Christ, what kind of difference could 3,000 people make? Think about what's the population of the world today? Billions? 10 billion? Is it up to 10 billion? I don't know. It's getting up there. Think about this. A, a group of people like us, what, what difference can we make even in northern Virginia and in Fairfax and in the greater Washington, D.C. area on the East Coast? That's what I want to ask us this morning. Think about this. What difference can the church make in the world today? Now, we've seen our, our origin story points us to an ancient religion arising from ancient events, documented, documented in an ancient collection of texts, right? 2,000 years ago at the very least. What difference can the church make in the world today? Well, I think we can answer that question by going back and seeing what did the first believers do that made an impact in their world? And how does that inform us about the kind of impact we can make today? So let's take a look at Acts chapter 2. And we're actually going to start in verse 41 and we'll read through verse 47. Follow along as I read aloud. It says this, So those who received his, being Peter's, word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What an amazing story here. 3,000 souls under the leadership of the apostles. What do they begin doing? They start living life together. And as they live life together with some basic habits, with some basic uh, patterns in their lives in devotion to Jesus, they had an impact on their world. And here's our big idea this morning. It's this. Through the gospel, God has created a supernatural community to reveal His grace to the world. That's the title of our message today. It's real simple. The supernatural community. Now, this isn't a super, this isn't a community of like, you know, the Avengers or something or the Eternals, right? These aren't people with like demigod powers here. No, these are people just like you and like me, but they're a supernatural community because what God had created in them and through them. You see, what created them in this moment was the gospel. What's the gospel? It was created by God. It's centered on Jesus. It was delivered by the apostles as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And through the gospel, God created this supernatural community, not just to be a community there in a moment, but to go and to reveal His grace to the world. Well, we have to ask ourselves, how did this supernatural community reveal God's grace? What did they do? I mean, we're talking about supernatural stuff. How can supernatural stuff come out of very natural people like you and like me back in Acts chapter 2? Well, let's take a look at some of the patterns that they had in their lives. The first believers in Jesus did four things, and we'll take a look at one at a time. The first thing they did is they learned. They were a learning community. The first believers in Jesus learn. And you could take a look again at verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Now, this devotion is, is this commitment. It's almost this obstinate commitment. I am going to devote myself all the time to the apostles' teaching. We saw it back in chapter 1, actually, the disciples, before the Holy Spirit came down, the, the disciples all together, about 120 of them in a room, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, that doesn't mean they ever stopped. Of course, they stopped. They had to d- take care of their natural needs. But it was this ongoing devotion and commitment to prayer. And now we see these first believers, what were they obstinate about commitment to? We're not going to give this up to devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were a learning community. You see, uh, many times we often think that the Christian faith, the Christian life is something that, that is very emotional. It's something that comes, it's got to start in the heart. In fact, I love the phrase that we have, we got to sometimes take our head knowledge and make it heart knowledge, right? Have you heard that before? Got to take head knowledge and turn it into heart knowledge. It's got to be something that affects the emotions. It's got to be something that affects our character. It's got to be something that affects our lives. However, it can't become heart knowledge unless it becomes head knowledge. It's something that we must learn. The apostles believed that the the message that they were passing on from generation to generation, they called it not just faith in a subjective way, but the faith, a body of truth that has to be received. You see, our faith is, is founded in historical facts, historical facts about who Jesus is, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and what He did for you and for me by dying on the cross for sins, rising from the dead, and ascending to heaven. Friends, if you're not a history fan, I hope you can at least appreciate the history of the gospel. Truth that must be learned, truth that must be received, and not just the truths about who Jesus did and what he did, but also learning the truths about, okay, that story about Jesus, the gospel truth, how does it impact my entire life? It's, it's, it's learning how to see the world, not with the eyes of a Republican, not with the eyes of a Democrat, not with the eyes of an independent or anybody else, but looking at the world through the glasses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does it impact how I, how I work? How does it impact the career that I choose? How does it impact the school that I may go to if I'm graduating? How does it impact who I'm going to choose to partner with in my life as a, as a husband or, or a wife? Who, who, how about this? The decision that I make to say, you know what, maybe God has called me to just wonderful and magnificent singleness. Maybe that's what God has called me to. But it's seeing all of life as a mom and as a dad, all of life through the lens of the gospel. And so these first believers, they committed themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were learners. Peter, later on, as he writes a letter to to the believers uh, in... uh, in Asia Minor, First uh, Peter chapter two verses two through three, Peter says this: "Like newborn infants, we've got a lot of babies being born right now, right? <laughs> like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk." Now, many of you new moms and dads, you know what this is like. You hear those cries. You can see them. I- I'm hungry. I need to eat. Right? They long for pure spiritual milk and. And here we've got Peter saying for these first believers, just babes in Jesus, long for the pure spiritual milk 
that by it you may grow up into salvation. You know, our salvation is complete. It's done, but it's almost as if we've got to grow into it. It's like a big baggy jersey, right, that you wear. You get this brand new jersey. I remember as a kid, I got big jerseys, and my parents would say, you'll grow into it, right? Like one of my favorite sports players. You grow into this salvation. It's magnificent. It's wonderful. And through learning, through craving this pure spiritual milk, we grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Has anybody in here tasted that the Lord is good? Crave pure spiritual milk. You know, when I see believers, they just have no passion. Now, I'm not saying all of us have to be academics or intellectuals, and for some of you, I've met so many, they say, I want to read my Bible, but I just have such a hard time reading. Oh, friends, that's why we've got, that's why we've got community here, to help each other crave this pure spiritual milk and grow up into our salvation. As we look at this, what kind of impact will we make on the world? What kind of impact did, did these first believers make? First of all, they were learners. They were devoted to learning the message about Jesus Christ and the implications that it has for all of life. You know, I was sitting with a couple of, of close friends. You know Kathy, of course, with crew and, and uh, her friend Brett. And I was having a cup of coffee with them this week. And I just asked them, you know, what are some of the challenges that you face as you're going out and, and speaking good news to the students, especially at George Mason University? What are some of the challenges that you see that are facing our young people on our campuses? And they said this, well, th- they, they come and they, they, they believe that truth is just relative. I've got my truth, and you've got your truth, and hey, this gospel message, it's, it's great for you, but I'm not sure that I really want to accept it. What relevance can the church have today? We could stand and say, with all humility and honesty, we believe that God has given us the truth in the person of Jesus Christ. And he attested to that truth because he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he attributed all these signs and wonders God did through him and said, this is my beloved son. And so we, we may not know everything exhaustively, friend. I'm not saying that we've got the answers about everything. But we do know this. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so these early believers, they were learners bringing truth, learning truth, and then going out expressing that truth to those that they saw. The first believers were learners. Are you a learner here today, friend? Willing to receive and learn, having an open mind to what God has said in his word. I hope you are. Well, the first believers in Jesus, they learned. Secondly, the first believers in Jesus worshiped. Worshiped. And in verse 42, we see that they were breaking bread together. Now, you may think to yourself, how is that worship? Well, many believe that, that it was likely uh, an allusion to the Lord's Supper. It may not have been only the Lord's Supper. They had what we know as love feasts. And in those love feasts, when they were together, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They celebrated communion, remembering through the bread and remembering through the juice the body of Christ and his blood shed for our sins. Well, they worship through the breaking of bread, they worship through the prayers, they worship, verse 46 says, at the temple. You see, they didn't reject all of their Judaism, but they said, you know what? Jesus Christ is the God of Israel. It makes sense for us to be here with our fellow Israelites saying, we know who Messiah is. And they gathered together very publicly and said, we're here to worship our Messiah, King Jesus. They worshiped at the temple. They worshiped in their homes, verse 46 says. In their homes. Hospitality hospitality, having intimate moments. Now, I don't think they were drinking coffee, 
But I love hospitality over a cup of coffee. But in their homes, every day, you see, in the minds of the first believers, it wasn't, I'm going to church. It was, we are the church. We are the church. And when the church is gathered at the temple, the church is at the temple. When the church is gathering in homes, the church is in homes. Everyday life, not going to church, but being the church. Well, how else did they worship? In verse 46, it says that they were doing this and they were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, happy about what God had provided for them in their needs, not focusing on what they didn't have, but praising God for what they did have. And it says they did it with generous hearts or sincere hearts or authentic hearts is the word there. There was no guile. There was no suspicion. There was no cynicism. They weren't jaded about one another or about their culture, but they came together and said, you know what? As bad as things may be out here in the Roman Empire, we are sincerely glad and thankful for what God has done and is doing for us. Boy, do we not live in a cynical and jaded age? Anybody that shows just an inkling of sincere and authentic happiness and joy, you almost just want to look at them and saying, oh, they're so naive. They're so ignorant. They're just living their life with their eyes closed. But friend, we are those that have our eyes opened to a great and glorious and magnificent God. And so of anybody on the planet, it, are the, it, are the, it is those who have believed in Jesus Christ who should worship with glad and sincere and generous hearts. Verse 47 says that they were praising God. And we've done that this morning, singing, just praise, giving Him worship, meaning that we are ascribing the worth to Him that He is due. And this was nothing new. It's not like this was something that the history of ancient Israel didn't show. That this, is, this is what God's people have been doing since the beginning. Psalm 33 verse 1 says, shout for joy in the Lord. Yeah, that's a shout. That's a shout. You know, I love football. I love football. I love to shout when my team wins. And I love to shout when they do something really stupid too and out of anger. But I love to shout for my teams. Oh, but God forbid that I'd be willing to shout for my team in a few months when my teams play on Saturdays and Sundays and come in here and have my lips closed. We're called to shout for joy in the Lord. Oh, you righteous, praise befits the upright. It's fitting for the upright. Those who are righteous in Jesus and know our God and, and wanting to seek to live righteous lives, it's fitting to give praise and shout and worship to Him. That's one of our, our pursuits here, right? Passionate worship. Passionate worship. Why? Because it befits the righteous. It's what the first believers did. They saw the magnificent works of God in their midst. Psalm 147 verse 1 says the same thing or a similar thing. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. I want to ask, if, if you're not willing to sing to this God, do you know Him? Do you know Him? Do you know what He's done for you? 
Do you know know what He's done in sending His Son to rescue you from sin and death? The people of Israel, they looked back to the Exodus. They looked back to when God destroyed Egypt and defeated Egypt on their behalf without them having to lift a finger. They saw how God parted the waters so that they could go through dry ground through the Red Sea. They saw God's deliverance and said, how can we not give praise to such a great God? Even more so, how can we not give praise to such a great God who's rescued us from sin and death through His Son, Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul, he, he even commands this of the believers in Colossae. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. All right, I'm fine with that. I'm teaching and admonishing you right now, and you do that for me sometimes. Hear about this, though. Singing psalms and hymns with spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I have a great friend in California. Her name is Sandy, and she leads kids in choirs, and she says, you know what? It's never commanded in Scripture to sing, to make a beautiful beautiful note, to sing a beautiful note. We're called to make a joyful noise, right? I don't care how bad you sing. Hopefully, you don't care care about how bad I sing. I'm not leading a solo up here today. But we're called to sing to one another. It befits the upright, you see, the point is not about our community. The point is God. You see, our community, what we're doing in here today, is merely the effect. Our new, new society of the church is not a mutual admiration society. We don't get here and admire one another. Oh, we've got the same affinities. Oh, we root for the same teams. Or we have the same hobbies. Or we come from the same cultures. Oh, yeah, that's great and that's good and that's fine. But that's not what we're here for. We're not a mutual admiration society We're a shared admiration society. What we're here is because we know our true God together. That's who we love. Our affection for each other, it's derivative. It doesn't come innately. I, I, I wouldn't know you if you didn't claim to know Jesus Christ and didn't come here today at Fairfax Bible Church. I, I wouldn't know you. There's so many of you I would not know. But our affection for each other, it derives from our worship of God a God who saved us from a million different communities of this world to become his family. That's a quote from Mark Dever uh, in his, his book, The Compelling Community. A million different communities have come together in this family of God. Why? Because we worship a great God. The first believers were worshipers. Uh, I think about the story. We'll get there eventually in our journey through Acts, but Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul and Silas They were preaching the gospel in a city called Philippi. And as they were doing that, they got into some trouble with some people. Some people didn't like what they were doing. And so they put them in prison. And what were Paul and Silas doing in prison? Acts 16 verse 25 says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Crying and weeping? Complaining? No, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Could you imagine? What, what would it be like if you were in prison? What would it be like if you were in chains for the gospel? What would it be look, look like if you were maybe a, a Christian in, in, a, in a culture or a time where, where you didn't have much material possessions? Would you have anything to praise God about? These first believers, they didn't praise and give thanks because all, everything was hunky-dory. They praised and gave thanks because they knew this God. The grace of God meets the world when they see Christians who aren't jaded and cynical by the age in which we live because we live for an age to come and that causes us to worship. 
are we a worshiping church? A church that can with all sincerity and authenticity say, I am joyful and I give thanks to my God. I see all the mess in the culture. I'm not ignorant to it. I'm not naive to it. But I'm here today to give thanks to my God because he's worthy of praise. Are you a worshiper, friend? Has God loosened the strings of your mouth to give him praise, to give him honor because you've encountered a great and awesome God? Well, we see that the first believers, they learned. We see that they worshiped. Thirdly, we see that they loved. They loved deeply. Well, what did that love look like? First of all, it looked like unity. They were united together. In verse 42, it says again that they had commonality. They were, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, this commonality, this partnership. I hold something in common with you. We have one mind, one purpose, one desire together, fellowship. Again, it says down in, in verse 44, something very similar, that they were together with one purpose in the temple courts. They had all things in common, one purpose, one goal, and that's to worship and obey and give their allegiance and talk about Jesus. Jesus. They were together. Now, don't forget, these people were in the city of Jerusalem just minutes, even hours before and they were all speaking different languages. They'd all come from different cultures. Don't think that they already knew each other and they were buddy-buddy. No, these people, they were in the same city together, but they had come from all over the world. Sounds a little bit like Fairfax in Northern Virginia, right? Coming from all over the world, from all kinds of different places. But once they came to know Jesus, they had fellowship. They were together. They loved each other through this undeniable, unshakable, unbreakable unity. They had unity. Now, where does this unity come from, and what are we to do about it? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ah, here's a clue. That unity comes from God the Holy Spirit coming inside you and me as we embrace Jesus. We don't create it. It's created by God, but we're called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Do you see the difference there? We don't create the unity, but it's our job to maintain the unity. God has created it in you and in me through what Jesus, his son, has done, and we are to fight and scratch and claw and do everything we can to say, I will love you and I will stay united to you no matter what you do or no matter what you say as long as we've got Jesus together. That's the touch point, friends. It brings Democrats and Republicans together. It brings blacks and whites together. It brings all kinds of people. It brings even Ukrainians and Russians together. It can bring people together. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God creates unity in places where you'd never see unity, but it's our job as God's family to protect and maintain that unity in Jesus Christ. I could disagree with you about items two through 1,000, but as long as we are together in item number one, we can have unity together. How are you doing at maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? 
We don't create it, but we're called to maintain it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. And I would say we also maintain it. What's the only glue that can bring people together from every culture, tribe, nation, and language? It's God's power through the gospel. We're joined to God in Christ by the Spirit, and it's unbreakable. It's unbreakable. These first believers, they loved each other through unity, but they also loved each other through generosity. Verse 44 says, because of their unity, they had all things in common. Now, that's not just ideas, but that's also their possessions. They held everything in common. Uh, They held loosely to their possessions. Why? Because they treasured something and someone greater than this world's possessions. They treasured Jesus. They treasured God. They treasured the gift of the Holy Spirit. They treasured this spiritual family that they got to be a part of and they said, I love my possessions, but I love the family of God even more. I'm willing to hold loosely to them. I'm willing to share with those who are in need. In fact, verse 45 says that they met each other's needs. No one went hungry. Everybody had what they need. It was ongoing. It was not just one time, but they were sharing together in commonality and in generosity. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, 16 to 18 about what it looks like to give to the one who's in need. And he says it's an indication of your relationship with God, your willingness to give to one who is in need. It says this in 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he, being Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the, the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's impossible to say, I love God and I love my church family. But when our church family's in need, we say, I'm sorry, I've got to keep this for myself. It's impossible. It's impossible. If you know this God, And if you truly love this God, and if you truly love your family, we're willing to give and be generous to those who are in need. This isn't under compulsion. This isn't uh, something that's forced. We're not talking about communism here where we're going to demand everybody turn in their stuff and then we'll divvy it out. No, no, no. This is willingly, voluntarily. It doesn't mean that it's organized by the pastor or the elders or anybody else. It means that it's you and you and me and us together as we see those in need, we say, I want to give to help those who are hurting. We just heard it from our sister Jodine. Just heard it from her a few minutes ago about our Go Beyond event. I I love the mission statement of Go Beyond, bringing hope, love, and beauty through acts of service, being generous. And we're gonna do something called generosity, acting like the first believers in the book of Acts. We've got generosity feeds coming up. Sign me up. I hope you'll be there. Let's partner together and look like a supernatural community saying, God has given us so much. How can we not give to those who are hurting and in need? Doing good deeds in the name of Jesus to those who are hurting. Friend, the the world will not listen to our sermons, our messages, our lectures, our podcasts. They won't read our bumper stickers or look at our social media posts about the grace of God until they experience it from our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears that are willing to listen, showing compassion, showing unity, 
showing generosity to those who are in need, that's what the world is watching for. That's what the world saw in the first believers in Acts chapter 2, a loving church that was united and that was generous. Fourthly and finally, what, what did these believers do? The first believers, they learned, they worshiped, they loved, and here's a word that I just made up. Actually, I've heard it before. They gospelized. I didn't put evangelize because you're going to get breakout in hives. They evangelized. Ooh, evangelism, that's so scary. How about this? They gospelized. Gospel means good news. They talked about the good news. They lived out the good news in the everyday stuff of life. One of my favorite contemporary teachers right now, Jeff Vanderstelt, he talks about that. He's in uh, Seattle, Washington. He talks about Christians. He's just calling us, you and me, to say, just live out the gospel in the everyday stuff of life. Gospelized. They gospelized. They good news to everywhere they could. They just lived it out in the way they treated each other and in their speech and in their life. And what happened here? Verse 43 says, God, people sensed God in their midst. Look at verse 43 again. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Friends, I don't think this was a private matter. I don't think that all this was happening when they were in their church services and the apostles would do many signs and wonders and the people were in awe just in their church gatherings. This was done out in public. The apostles are going around. We're going to see it next week. With the, uh, Peter and John, they, they command a man who gets healed uh, from lameness and paralyzation through the power of Jesus. The apostles were out and about and they were doing signs and wonders and the people there, the, the followers of Jesus, they were in awe of God's power so that as these people gospelized. It wasn't just the church that was in awe. It was an entire city that was in awe. God is doing something. I don't, these people don't seem like they're all that special. These are just common folk that have jobs and families, have to change diapers and all that stuff. But this is, this is amazing. This is awesome. God is doing something in their midst that I can't explain. And so their community was in awe. They were in awe People sense God in their midst. And look at what else. Verse 47 says, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. I believe their behavior was winsome. They had winsome behavior. I love that word. We don't use it enough, winsome. It means charming or winning or engaging. Now, this isn't in such a way that you're just kind of like, you know, you're, you're, you're a master at deceiving people. Your behavior, your attitude, your, your willingness to listen, your compassion, your humility is winsome. There's something attractive about the way they think, the way they speak, the way they live. They were finding favor with all the people. Now, we're going to find that some people hated them. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that being a follower of Jesus is going to cause you to win lots of friends, but it does mean there's something attractive about their behavior, our behavior, that says they're charming in the way they think about things. They win me over with their humble arguments. They're engaging in the way they love and serve others. Their behaviors were winsome. Uh, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, Everyday Church, says people are often attracted to the Christian community before they are attracted to the Christian message. They're often attracted to the Christian community, the winsomeness, the love, the compassion, before they're ever attracted to the Christian message about Jesus Christ. And so what happened? Verse 47, the Lord saved more souls. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, as these people, these first believers, as they looked up and worshiped, and as they looked out in generosity, 
the Lord saved souls. You see, before they came to know Jesus Christ, before you came to know Jesus Christ, and before I did, guess where my gaze was? Right here. I only cared about myself. But what the gospel does, it opens our hearts up so that we see our true God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then through that, we start looking out and caring for the needs of others. And through that, God provides a winsome, supernatural community that people start asking questions and saying, God is in their midst. How can it be? You see, these people, they lived out the gospel in the everyday stuff of life. The gospel was a message about Jesus Christ as Lord, and the gospel had and has supernatural implications for for how the first believers and believers live today. The gospel was on display in word and in deed. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, Jesus told his followers, in the same way, like a light, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A people who are gospelizing, living out the goodness of the gospel and speaking up when it's time to give praise and credit to King Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, the Gentiles was just the world at large, the pagan world that, that didn't believe in the God of the Bible, didn't believe in the God of Israel, didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah and Savior and Lord. He says, keep your conduct among those types, amongst the world honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, even if they were accused you of something, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A people who gospelized in the everyday stuff of life. You know, I was just talking with, a, we, we were having a conversation actually in uh, Sam and Catherine uh, Castle's uh, uh, small group the other night. And the question just arose, how do I live just on fire for Jesus? I mean, the Apostle Paul, we're looking at Philippians. The Apostle Paul, I mean, he's just selling out for Jesus. And it makes me feel so small. What am I willing to do for Jesus? Friends, I I don't think all of us can be the Apostle Paul, but I think we can live out the gospel in the everyday stuff of life. Shining as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. Shining like stars so that people see the goodness of God in your behaviors and attitudes, in my behaviors and attitudes, how we're learning together, how we're loving together, how we're worshiping together, how we're gospelizing and speaking about the goodness of Jesus together so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The first believers in Jesus, they learned, worshiped, loved, and gospelized, and that's our big idea this morning. Through the gospel, God has created a supernatural community to reveal his grace to the world. I think we've got a picture here of a piece of art that depicts the first believers together in community, praising God, learning from the apostles' teaching, breaking bread together, showing hospitality to one another in their homes, living out the implications of the gospel and the everyday stuff of life and giving praise to his name 
What kind of difference did the church make in the world at that time? Well, God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This brings us back to our question then. What difference can the church make in the world today? Again, in everyday church, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, they say this, the, the Christian community demonstrates the effectiveness of the gospel. We, you and me, we are the living proof that the gospel is not an empty word, but a powerful world, word that takes men and women who are lovers of self and transforms them by the grace of the Spirit into people who love God and others. We, you sitting in this seat today and me standing on this stage today, we together are living proof that the death of Jesus was not just a vain expression of God's love, but an effective death that achieved the salvation of a people who now love one another sincerely from a pure heart. That's the power of a supernatural community. The community that we see in Acts 2 and the community that we see in this auditorium here today. The supernatural community, you and me, as we go and live out the gospel and the everyday stuff of life, we can bring the answer to the biggest questions our world is asking. The world is it's craving for truth. The gospel gives us truth in response to the relativism of our age. The age that says, your truth, my truth, what is truth? We say, we know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The supernatural community that you and I are a part of, it gives transcendence in response to materialism. We worship something that's great. We don't just strive for that better car or that grand vacation or that early retirement. John Piper says, what do you get from an early retirement than some seashells that you collect on the seashore? And whose will those be? Who cares? But we live for something far greater. It gives people a transcendence and awe of wonder that says, I know the creator of the universe and I invite you to know him too. Our supernatural community gives unity in response to the division of our age. It shows the world what true love and unity really is. A steadfast, unconditional unity that cannot be broken through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our supernatural community that God has given and allowed us to be a part of, it gives purpose in response to despair. So many young people of our day and age, so many adults Elderly of our day and age live purposeless, despairing lives. But the gospel says that I live for a great purpose. That's to know my God and to make him known. Our supernatural community is more relevant than it's ever been in the history of the planet, I believe with all my heart. Will we live as a supernatural community? Finally, what does this mean for Monday? It means this. Don't just go to church. Be the church. Be the church. Our mission is this at Fairfax Bible Church. Tell me if this sounds familiar from what we saw in Acts chapter 2. Our mission is to glorify God, worship, by making disciples of all nations, gospelizing and learning as we live in loving community. That sounds like a supernatural community to me. So how can we reach our world? How can I reach my world? How can you reach your world? How can I live in such a way that Jesus is the center of my life? First of all, learn. Listen closely to the teaching and preaching of the Bible. Read it for yourself. Read it with one or two others. Pick a book and read it with a couple of friends. Talk about it. Memorize it. But above all, obey it. Be a learner. Learn in community here. What does this mean for Monday? Be a worshiper. 
be devoted to Sundays. Now, I know sometimes we, we have trips, vacations, sickness, things like that. But if you're here, are you committed to gathering with God's people to worship? Keep the corporate gathering a priority. Do you worship in, in your personal devotional life? Keep the gospel in front of you through the reading of the scripture. Let it fill your heart with praise, gratitude, thanksgiving. Pray. Call out to this God. Give him praise. Give him thanks. Tell him what you're sorry for. Tell him what you need. And sing. Families, sing in your homes. Talk about Jesus in your homes. Pass on the stories of God's work in your lives to coming generations, to your kids, so that they could see God has been in my family. Well, friends, how can we reach our world? How can you do this? Be together. Maintain unity. You need the body of Christ and the body needs you. Love one another, serve each other, sacrifice your time for the good of the spiritual community. Give, offer your resources, not under compulsion, but give it willingly as God is prompted in your heart to meet a need of someone that's in our body or to help, uh, to help advance the cause of the mission of this church here. Give, step out, find others in the supernatural community at Fairfax Bible Church with whom you may have little in common apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I leave, love seeing in our small groups. Groups of people that are together from all kinds of languages and tongues and tribes and cultures. But why are they together? Because they love Jesus. Are you in a small group? Are you finding that place of love and community and generosity with a small group of people? We would love to get you into a small group if you're not. Finally, gospelize. Faithful followers of Jesus display their faith on the inside and the outside. You see, don't just commit to religion on the outside. Religious display only in public is an empty facade, but religious devotion only in private is also a false hope. You've got to live out your religion. Gospelize. Pure and undefiled religion, James says, is to keep oneself unstained from the world and to care for widows and orphans in their distress. The gospel begins in our hearts and it always works its way, its way out into the lives of those who we share supernatural community with. And let this community support you. You are not alone, friend. You may be terrified of going and having that spiritual conversation with someone that's close to you in your life. You're not alone. We're here with you. Go speak the good news about Jesus to those who need to hear it. But God's called us to be a supernatural community. And we've seen the origin of the church here in, in, in these moments, in this origin story. But that origin story isn't just for 2,000 years ago. It's for 2022. It's for Fairfax, Virginia. It's for this community that's right here today. Will we learn? Will we worship? Will we love? And will we gospelize? Will you do that? Will I do that together? Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for inviting us and ushering us into this supernatural community. God is in our midst because those who belong to Jesus are in this, our midst here today. The family of God is here at Catherine Johnson Middle School today in Fairfax Bible Church. Thank you so much for, for purchasing us, for transforming us, for convicting us, and for bringing us into this family. And Father, as we see the first believers, what they did, I pray that you would make us people that are committed to learning the truth, 
committed to communicating the truth, people that are committed to worshiping our great God in actions and in truth, people that are committed to loving each other in unity and generosity, and people that are willing to gospelize, to live out the gospel in the everyday stuff of life and speak good news to those who desperately need to hear it. Father, make us a supernatural community. Lead us, guide us, empower us. And as we get ready to go in just a few minutes, I pray that there would be those here today that encourage each other, that pray for each other, that love each other, that invite each other to say, hey, let's live on this mission together that was inherited from those first believers 2,000 years ago. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.